Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 234. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jujitsu approach. And today, back with friend of the show, all the way from Sweden, Mr. John Thomas. How's it going, John? Hey, happy to be back. What is this like? Is this my fourth time? Something like that. You know, at this point, it's just like a a regular thing, man. You're always welcome here, of course, though. Yeah, it's always good to be here. (laughs) Well, hey, I got a topic for you that I thought you, of all people, would be great to discuss. In the last episode, we were talking to Chris Paynes, founder Preet Mikkelsen, and he Mm -hmm. was talking about grip fighting from top position. Mm -hmm. That got me thinking, you know what, we should probably counterbalance this by talking about grip fighting from the bottom. And I could not think of a better person to talk to than you about this particular topic. So yeah, for sure. Well, with that said, man, I would love to discuss this with you, of course, uh, one of the things that you're known for is your your systematic approach to attacking a lot of heavily grip-based guards off of the bottom. Particularly, your collar sleeve stuff has been pretty inspirational and educational to a lot of people like myself. But with that said, man, I'll turn it over to you. You got the floor here today. Grip fighting from the bottom. Go for it. Okay. So we'll talk definitely about bottom. I'd like to touch talking about top too, just because I think it's like also very interesting. Yeah, go for it in general. So we just like, let's see where the conversation goes. So the first thing I'd say, like grip fighting in a lot of ways, it's a very, like if it was like a university course, there's a lot of prerequisites to really do grip fighting well. Right. So what guards you grip fight for will depend on the guards, you know, right. So if we start with no grips, let's imagine I'm sitting up, you're standing and approaching and no one has grips yet. Right. What is the right choice or wrong choice will heavily depend on what guards you know. So for example, if someone puts their right arm forward and I grab that sleeve grip, right, then I can fall back to a collar sleeve system, then maybe a good choice, right? But if you don't know collar sleeve or you don't have any sleeve guard, well, then that's not really a valid choice for you, right? So what is a good choice in grip fighting is going to be heavily dependent on the prerequisites that you know. So what I usually tell students is in the long run, the best thing is to develop knowledge in individual guards and positions because that's going to like expand your vocabulary, if you will. And then you'll, the more vocabulary you have, the more sentences you can form, right? So that being said, I think the grips that are most useful to know how to build off first are a single sleeve grip, because for your opponent to literally do anything, they have to use their hand, right? So at some point, they're going to have to try to grab you. And if you know how to build off of a sleeve grip, you can always get that grip first. I should also mention that grip fighting and guard retention are both always kind of happening at the same time. So I try to think like the fundamental of your guard is your ability to stop your opponent from passing with you having no grips, right? 
So that's like a great scaffolding to build on. If I have no grips, I can indefinitely stop them from passing, just framing, pushing, and everything, right? If you have that, then you're good, right? Then depending on what grips you know, grips will appear. So let's say hypothetically, the only guard I know is built off of a sleeve grip. Say the only guard I know is like a, a double sleeve, okay? Well, if I don't have double sleeve, I don't really have anything I can do until I get it. So I would say just defend until a grip appears that you know something to do with, right? Now, if you know how to build off of an ankle grip, like my hand on the ankle playing Dele Eva, you know how to build off of a sleeve grip, you know how to build off of a collar grip. Well, then the routes that you could win the grip fight open a lot more because you have multiple grips that you could get to and win from, right? For me, because I have such width in the guards that I play, I generally optimize for safety first. So I always talk about distance, right? If I'm sitting up, just imagine like boxing. If I'm like uh, standing and I'm like 20 feet away, you can't punch me. It doesn't matter if you're Mike Tyson, right? You can't punch me, right? So there's there's safety and distance. So if I'm playing guard and I'm sitting up and I just put my arms straight out, like to the point that I'm trying to touch you and you can't touch me, then you cannot do anything to me, right? So the first thing that enters what I call my grip bubble so like enters arm reach, I will build off of that grip first. Does that make sense? That makes a ton of sense. Right. So in that case, I'm kind of optimizing for safety first. So if you approach me, I'll back up. I ever let you get past my grip bubble, right? So the first thing that if my left hand is forward, people are going to have to be good with their imagination to visualize this. But <laughs> if I have my right hand on the mat and my left hand forward, right? And they approach with their right arm forward, then my left arm is meeting their right arm right? So then their sleeve will approach me, right? So then I can grab their sleeve first. If they have their sleeve away and they're still right leg leading, I can grab their knee first. If their sleeve is away and their leg is back and they're like hunched over, I can grab their collar first. But I'm always going to make the first grip in that sense and be so far away, it is hard for them to pass, right? So if you ever see my podcast on here or heard my podcast on here rather, where I talk about guard retention, I talk a lot about the idea of distance. So I optimize for that. But again, there's prerequisites required there. So there's a lot of different directions we could go with. It's kind of an abstract topic. So I'll let you kind of ask some questions to probe and then we'll kind of hash it out from there. Yeah, yeah. The first thing I'd love to explore is this idea of a grip bubble. That's a a cool way of thinking about this. Am I correct in understanding that you're basically talking about, I mean, again, we're kind of bringing this back to a boxing analogy, but kind of what's within striking distance. You're looking at effectively which part of your opponent's body is coming within to grabbing range and you're focusing on attacking that piece first. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. And in a hundred percent. And in that sense, you don't really get to choose that. Right. Mm -hmm. So if my opponent chooses to step his right leg forward and have his hands back, like say he's being very elusive with his hands, so I can't catch a sleeve grip, but his right leg is forward, then I can grab like a knee grip, like the material on the outside of the knee, or you could even like single leg grip if you want. But that's like the closest thing to grab. Right. So I could grab that first. Right. But let's say that I really wanted to grab his leg because I like to do single legs but his legs are really far away and his hands are forward. Well, then if I start over chasing the leg and it's not there, I'm going to allow him to make the first grip with the lapel or an underhook and be initiating the offense, right? The benefit here is this is not like boxing in the sense that in boxing, assuming we're both the same height and same arm reach, then if we're both at like the same range, then it's like, I can't hit you, you can't hit me. And at the, when I first get to the moment where you can, I can hit you and you can hit me, then we're equal, right? But in this, it's different because as the guard player, all I have to do is get a grip and then I can actually attack you from a distance, like playing collar sleeve or double sleeve or daily Eva. It'd be pretty far back. In fact, distance is helpful because I have more leverage on posture break. But as the passer, 
you have to close the business. You have to get chest to chest, right? So when we get to the point that I'm just barely in arm's reach of you, I have more option than you do. You know what I mean? It's not the same thing. It's not like boxing where, well, you could punch me too. I'm actually at a very safe distance where I barely touch you. But then when you get closer, now you're starting to enter a situation where you could actually do something. This would be easier if I had like visual annotations, but you know, I think that people can get it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least to me, it makes perfect sense what you're saying. And that is such an important lesson for people who are struggling off of the bottom, which is understanding that you can't always just grab whatever grip you want. It is very much dependent on what your opponent is presenting to you at the time. When I was earlier on in my journey, I remember making this mistake quite often where I would get it into my head. You know, I want to get a collar grip on this guy and I'd be fighting for that, even if that wasn't a good strategy because their collar was somewhat out of range. Well, and that's understandable too, because when you're newer, you have less grip set. So you don't, you know, if you only know how to do a single leg grip, right, or build a game where you like have a single leg or a half guard, it's understandable that you're trying to filter the conversation to something you know about, right? It would be like if you're like learning a new language and like, you know, you only did the chapter on like, you know, like plumbing or something, right? And then every time you have a conversation (laughs) with someone, they want to talk about something like going to the grocery store or like, going shopping and you keep steering it back to plumbing because they're the only words you know, right? (laughs) It's like probably not the best way to have a real conversation. But, you know, so of course, when you know one thing, you want to like filter it to that, right? And in some sense, that makes sense, but that'll happen more organically over time. At a higher level, truly, you want to just try to learn everything. And then then you can kind of take things as they appear, right? So if you optimize for distance first and you build off of the first thing, then it becomes easier. Another like very pragmatic thing to mention too with that grip bubble thing is that, so let's say they're right leg leading, then I'll usually have my left hand board and my right hand on the floor because the right hand on the floor allows me to move forward and backwards easily. If you're sitting center with both hands up, you can't move back and forward easily, right? Because you're static. So with that hand on the floor, I can move forward and back. But then if they switch their leg lead, so now let's say they're left leg lead, right? Well, if I have my right hand on the floor, then it's like we're kind of mirrored so he can actually grab my lapel and my left hand is on the opposite side of his left arm, right? Because we're mirrored. So whenever they switch their leg lead, I switch my hand position. So if I have like my left hand forward and their right hand is forward, then my left hand is going to meet their right hand. If they switch to a left leg lead, I'll switch my left hand to the floor and put my right hand forward and then build off that. That allows me to keep the grip bubble distance so that I'm always first contacting with their grip. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. I like the part you mentioned about posting with your hand as well. I kind of play that position from the bottom a lot too, where I'm kind of in that like a technical sitting position and I use my hand to move myself forward or backward depending on Absolutely. what. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think a mistake that a lot of people make, especially especially if they're, uh, you know, training jujitsu exclusively is they'll sit on the ground and they'll wait for their opponent to come to them. The challenge, of course, is if you're just waiting for them to enter your guard, you can't guarantee they're going to do that. They might try to, if they're smart, just enter a passing sequence directly. And so that again comes back to what you were talking about managing the distance and making sure that when you go into guard, it's in a favorable situation with the grips you want. For sure. And I think like I use both. I use like the hand on the floor and then the the center pit Marcello style where you would sit center on your butt with like both hands up. I use both. I would say that the one hand on floor model is the best for like a beginner. It's also great at a world-class top level as well. So it's just great all around. But the sitting center one is also great at a really high level. 
but it's very easy to mess up if you're a beginner. Yeah. So if you sit dead center, then what I'll do sometimes is like, I don't know, they're standing square or whatever. There's He's not moving forward. We're kind of right at that distance. I'll put both hands up and I sit dead center. And what I do is I put both feet in the air. So I'm kind of just floating on my butt. And I put both feet in the air and I try to block their shins. So my feet track their shins or knees and they can't step near me because my feet are kind of posted on their knee. Now, if they try to push my leg down, then my arm will grab their sleeve. If they pull the sleeve away so I can't grab their sleeve, well, now my foot is still stuck on their knee and they can't progress forward. But that takes a lot more kind of like you have to almost have two brains for your legs and hands at the same time. But if you get good at that, that is very good as well. And there's benefits with grip fighting because sometimes it gets, you know, you keep alternating leg lead or whatever. But then that kind of leads back to the original point, which is really you want to trust your guard retention a lot. You know, grip fighting is a great thing. I use it a lot. But if your guard retention is rock solid, then you, you're not as stressed, right? You want to see it as just like a nice extra. So guard retention and grip fighting are always happening at the same time. Yeah, this is something about just the way that we think about our bodies that I kind of observed as I got deeper into jujitsu. When you start jujitsu, you're often very preoccupied with what your hands are doing. And that kind of makes sense because, you know, in in day-to-day life, when we're picking up things or manipulating them with our hands, it is usually a pretty conscious activity. Whereas when we're kind of walking from one place to another, we often don't think much about what we're doing with our feet. And something that I observe is that once people get a bit more competent with jujitsu, they start to get better at what you said, like tracking their their mm, opponent's position, yeah. using their feet, and they just become more aware of coordinating all four limbs at once instead of just the hands. Now, something that many gyms practice is this kind of guard retention drill where your job as the person on bottom is to retain your guard, but you're not allowed to use grips. And that sounds like something that you're talking about here, where you're looking for ways to practice building a guard that is not entirely dependent on having the right grips. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, to make a distinction there, I have to clarify this to students sometimes, is like when I say no grips, what I mean is like, don't hold them in a guard with grips. Like you should still use your hands. Like you should still be posting on their shin, posting on their shoulder. You can even grab the material when you post if you want as well to kind of help steer and move yourself. But more what I meant was make your defense not come from like a guard. Yeah. Yeah. So for example, if someone, if I asked, oh, is your guard good? And you said, yeah, the guy didn't pass me for 10 minutes, but you had him in closed guard for 10 minutes, not letting him out. Well, he didn't pass your guard. I don't know that your guard retention or defense is actually really good, or you just didn't let the guy out of closed guard. Right. Yeah. So now in the same vein, like you could do the same thing with double sleeve or worm guard or something, right? You could like lock someone in double sleeve or lock someone in worm guard. And then like, you don't actually have to have good guard retention. You could just hold on to the that grip and then your defense is coming from that. So what I would say is it's okay to make grips a little bit when you're defending, just don't hold the guy in some guard as the primary of your defense, right? Yeah. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. And I think that's very applicable to jujitsu because as you know, grips often dictate where the fight goes. If one person is winning the grip fight and the other person can't get counter grips, usually the person winning the grip fight is going to be able to dictate what happens next. So the problem that can happen is people get over dependent on the grips. And like you said, rather than trying to actually work their guard retention muscle, they're just trying to paralyze and prevent their opponent from moving. And I mean, hey, that definitely works, but it's just that's not the guard retention piece necessarily. That's more just holding and controlling an existing position, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
hundred percent. So, and that's why I, I harp so much on just getting good at that one first, like the whole defending with no grips, because you know you can't always get to your close guard, you can't always get to double sleeve, you can't always get to collar sleeve, but you can always get to the no grip guard. Yeah, right. All you got to do is let go, right? So you're always in the no grip guard if you want. So if you focus on that and you really trust that, then you're like, oh, I'm good. If you actually trust that you can stop someone from passing when you have no particular guard then you actually trust your guard, right? Then the guards will come. And that's really critical. You want to have that first. Like the the guards should be like a nice extra that you have. They shouldn't be a, a necessity, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting because I've observed a lot of uh, people doing this recently where they practice guards and systems that don't even require grips necessarily to retain the position. So a lot of guards like, uh, you know, Preet Mikkelsen calls it his like sideways grill chicken, but it's kind of similar to like what Lachlan does where you're playing like a side guard. Those are interesting because often you start off in a position where you're kind of balled up and you, you might not necessarily have the grips right off of the bat, but if you can keep your frame strong and you can keep compact, you can make really tough for someone to can you describe that position a little more i'm not sure i understand yeah 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 so you know if think of like kind of the traditional classic meme jujitsu guard where the person just falls on their back and they just sit there upside down like a dead spider right if you kind of tilt to the side so you're still kind of coiled up but you're at least kind of on your side a bit and you're you're waiting for your opponent to come towards you and then the idea is that you're coiled up enough that if they were to try to run past you for example it would be very hard for them to just run into side control because you've kept that elbow knee space very tight yeah. Okay. So you're just talking about kind of like being on a side tilt with like your feet up kind of, right? Exactly. Right. I mean, you can play that position such that just by keeping small and compact, even if you lose the grip fight, you can still grand B or, or get back to the guard that you want to get to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say like center position and side tilt position both have use. Like the, the thing with side tilt is like, so you're focused on that left side, if they pass, but if they pass to the back side, now your back is exposed. Is a different route, right? Yeah, yeah. So then it just depends on what you're doing, right? But ultimately, I think the more open you're referring to a position, it's harder to be exact, right? Mm -hmm. So like if you're doing like an arm bar, like from mount, and I like I have it locked all the way in, we can break that down into like if this, then this, if this, then this. When you're talking about open guard as a whole, it's like there's so many possible ways you could position yourself, right? So I, I don't think that, you know the world's best supercomputer. Even like chat GPT AI cannot tell you the best first move in chess, <laughs> right? So I, I would say jujitsu is more complicated because you can't even repeat the positions, right? So for me, in those cases, I do think like principles are kind of good. So as long as like you're not getting past, you know, whether you're side tilt or your center, as long as you're effective at not allowing them to get to your side or to your back, then you're, you're good, right? And there's many different ways to accomplish that. But then at some point to actually attack the person, you'll need to establish some kind of a control, right? So then whether or not you're aggressively trying to assert that control from the beginning, or you're just kind of like relaxed, letting them try to pass. And then, you know, you find the grip as they approach you, both are valid. If you don't trust your guard retention, then you're going to feel this like implicit stress to like have to get your guard immediately. Otherwise you're, you're doomed. But if you just trust your core guard retention, you can just kind of defend for two minutes and eventually you'll kind of find yourself probably in some grip, you know how to do something with, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And you touched on something that I think is a really great observation. Just this idea that open guards tend to have a lot more variability and a lot. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. A big part of that, probably like you implied earlier, is when you're clamped up to someone and you're controlling and restricting their movement, there are fewer things that the person can do to get out of there. Whereas in an open position, there's so much variability. And I think that might be part of the reason why open guards can be very confusing and challenging for new people is because there's so many options it's hard to know what to predict whereas if i pull you into my closed guard i've I've taken away many of your options and things get more predictable for me yeah that's why i think most work that people should be doing should be from specific training from key positions that you know matter because the answers will be certain right like if you're trying to solve something like what's the best way to play open guard as a whole it's so abstract but if you're like, okay, like, uh, how do you finish the triangle trick? That's very solvable. If you go, okay, what's, you know, how do I control double sleeve? Like you've eliminated his hand movement. So there's like less variables. So if you break all of it down by parts, eventually it'll all kind of come together and you'll naturally put it together. So beginners shouldn't worry too much about the large abstract. They should break it down. Like, can I escape side control? Can I escape mount? Can I finish side control? Can I finish her mount? Can I finish an arm bar? Can I finish a triangle choke? Do I understand the basic control of double sleeve? Do I understand the basic control of color sleeve? If you get good at all of that stuff separately, eventually it'll, you'll just naturally put it all together, right? Yeah. I think that's the easiest way to go about it. But if you want, you know, if you're putting a beginner into sparring and, you know, you can give them loose principles to kind of go on, like get around the legs, right? That's, you know, it's probably good, right? But sometimes you don't have to get around the legs. You can just try to pressure them first and things like that, you know? But, you know, to be exact, I think like the best investment of your time is those core positions because you know that they're going to be useful, right? Yeah, yeah. Another topic I think is really useful, understanding both from like guard and passing is like what you're prioritizing for. Because like a lot of people, like we were talking about, maybe they have a favorite guard. So they're like optimizing for like, I want to get that guard. So they're spending all their energy to get that. But like you or like, let's say I'm on top and I'm passing, I could optimize for I need to pass as fast as possible, or I am trying to... force this knee cut position. But like a lot of times when I'm on top, I try to optimize for efficiency. I try to use low energy and be efficient so I don't waste energy. Because just because you're on top, like if neither person does anything, no energy is spent, right? So if you're using a lot of energy, if you don't actually get the outcome you want, you could just be wasting energy, right? So it's kind of a little bit woo-woo or abstract, but sometimes like lowering your heart rate down and just relaxing and trying to find the path of least resistance will actually lead you to better outcomes. You know, So sometimes I go into the guard, I don't focus as much on passing, and I focus more on staying calm and trying to find points that I can apply pressure by getting chest, like my chest weight over them and finding my way through that way. You know, But that's, again, that's more of like a, a principle-based approach. You need both the principle-based and you also need the like specific Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a great point. I think that if you're on top, you should definitely be taking advantage of the fact that you have gravity on your side to win the energy conservation game. The person on the bottom, because they're on the bottom, even if they're an amazing guard player, ideally you should be trying to make them burn more energy than you are. And I think that is an important thing because... For people, especially beginners who aren't really comfortable with guard, they try to turn it into a track meet sometimes. You know, they're just trying to run around the person from one side to the other. And really, you should always be making sure that if you have the advantage of being the one on top, that you're winning that battle of energy. Yeah. Right. Because that way, even if you don't get the pass you want, you're still in a better position than if you had just uh, burned more energy than your opponent did. 
Absolutely. And that's where, again, like grip fighting becomes a bit complicated because, well, first off, you know, that is true, right? I want to have gravity against them. But the problem for someone who's like a beginner, really, even like a black belt, if they don't know the position, is like that is objectively too. I want to keep pressure on the guy. So then, like, okay, keep pressure. And you go into a match, you're like, no pressure. But like, how? You know, it's actually a lot harder than that, right? So if you're in double sleeve, you may want to put pressure on the guy but you actually structurally don't know how to do it in that specific situation. So it's like me giving you a knot and being like, make it not tied. It's like, oh, okay. Well, how? That's where you have to have specific knowledge and general principle-based knowledge. So understand that the right answer is probably going to be the one that allows you to put pressure and is energy efficient, but you're going to have to do some trial and error in the positions to solve it, right? Now with grip fighting, that's another point where like uh, you were talking originally about grip fighting from top. It's hard to say because grip fighting is so dependent on the person. Like, for example, I feel very comfortable passing De La Hiva guard where someone holds my ankle. A lot of people don't like being in De La Hiva guard. So if I approach, I could try to grip fight to like set up all these things. But if I'm comfortable in that position, I could step forward with my footboard and let them take that grip. But that may be a bad choice for someone else if they don't feel comfortable with that, right? So sometimes on top, trying to like force a particular pass or trying to never let them get a grip can actually make it harder for yourself. Whereas if you just go, okay, well, they're going to get a grip. Let me just give them the grip I would prefer that they have. Things like that. So grip fighting, again, it's a bit of a abstract thing because there's so many prerequisites based off of the skills that you have, right? In theory, if I was really good at passing the triangle choke position, like getting out of the triangle and smash passing someone, you could give someone a triangle choke just to pass them. And like, imagine you just spent like a hundred years and all you focused on was smash passing out of a triangle and you're a big guy that's not necessarily wrong if it wins the match right so there's some amount of like self-analysis of your own skill sets on like what you're doing with your grip fighting that's why i always say it's like a hard thing to define right yeah that's actually a really good point that sometimes these positions are, are not universally good or bad but can come down to your comfort level and getting attacked from there. I'm the same as you, where I really don't have a problem with people pulling Delahiva on me. I'm quite comfortable defending against Delahiva from the top, but I know that a lot of people are just terrified of getting into that position. And I don't know if it's body type or game or what, but for me, that guard has just never been something that particularly gives me trouble. Whereas there's other guards that give me fits that maybe for other people don't have that. And yeah, I think like you say, having that kind of intuitive understanding of where you're comfortable going can really, really help you decide, you know, what passing sequence you're, you're going to attack from. But also if you're the person on the bottom, it's something that you can try to read from your opponent, which is okay. Yes, maybe I, maybe I'm trying to funnel them into a particular guard here, but are they okay with that? Are they comfortable defending from there? Because some people, you know, we're we're all like Dungeons and Dragons characters, right? We've all got different stats and strengths and weaknesses, and we might be better at playing one guard versus another. Yeah, that what I would say, that's definitely true. But the question is, how do you make those decisions in a match? Yes. And the reality is you won't have 100% right. Like, let's say Spider Guard's my best position. But if I'm fighting a guy that is his best skill set is passing spider guard and he's terrible at playing you know or passing de la Hiva, and i'm okay at playing de la Hiva, say well my okay position may relatively be stronger than my best position versus that particular opponent right but the thing is you don't have time to make that kind of like a high level assessment during a match right you can't be in there like well you know his stats say that he's an eight <laughs> therefore like you know you're just fighting right so realistically that's where 
you know, what I always say is like, when you're actually in a match, like when I'm really rolling, if I'm trying to like optimally perform, I'm not trying to evolve or learn. I'm just trying to optimally perform. I focus on my breathing and staying relaxed and being energy efficient, right? It's like reading a book. I don't like force what word I want. I just read what's in front of you. You have to go with your gut, right? Whatever knowledge you have is what you have on you that day. It's like a test, right? It's like, you know it or you don't. So you just relax and let the fight happen and just trust your gut and go with whatever. And your best choices will come out of you then. And and if you make a bad choice, you made a bad choice. You just need to be a little bit better, but that's how you're going to optimally perform. But if you want to increase your ability to optimally perform, you do separate sessions where you specific train. So if I'm in a normal role and I end up in daily HIVA, then, you know, I've done so much specific training in daily HIVA that my subconscious will make it easy for me to be in daily HIVA when I end up there in a normal role. So I do separate sessions for that to isolate it, right? But if you're going into the regular match, trying to think about what you want to do or what's his thing, you're going to get so in your head, you're going to be stifled and it just won't work. So you just need to try to like focus on staying calm, not wasting energy and just go with the flow and trust that whatever's in you is in you. After the match, if stuff goes wrong, you analyze what went wrong. Damn, when I was in SpiderGuard, I had no idea what to do. Okay, then on another day, specific train from SpiderGuard for like 30 minutes and watch some instructionals on passing it and watch competition footage and really work on that and solve it in specific training. Then the next time you're in a regular role, it'll naturally come out of you that you have the answers. So you need to make a clear distinction to yourself, roles for the purposes of developing and roles for the purposes of optimal performance. Optimal performance will be when you stay calm, relax. Like think of Hodger Gracie. That's like the best example, right? When he fights Pichetra, Pichetra is like hyper intense, super athletic, fast paced. Hodger is very calm, collected, and smooth. The best jujitsu comes when you're like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is a, a dichotomy that I love talking about here. This idea of growth versus performance. You know, are you are you doing something because you're trying to perform on the spot and succeed right now, which you would do in a competition, which probably means you're going to try to take things towards what you already know and what you're already good at versus am I in the lab? Am I trying to learn where you might be doing the opposite and trying to pull yourself out of your comfort situations? And I think, like you said, the Thinking consciously about your training sessions and having a goal going in about what you want to work with is so key to doing that. Because if you don't, if you don't do what you discuss there and you just show up for class and you're not really thinking about it, you're going to gravitate towards the positions you already are good at and you already know. Yeah, 100%. Well, one thing to mention there that I know a lot of people listening to this will have an issue though is uh, it depends on the class and the gym you're in, right? Because what I'm describing is like you can control your training. But the problem is like, let's say that you're like, oh, I really want to work on my, my Toriando pass tonight, right? And then you go into the gym and now you have the idea that you're, you want to be thoughtful with your training. So you go into normal training and you want to work your Toriando pass. Well, the problem with that is that's normal training. That's when you should actually be doing the, you shouldn't be trying to force your Toriando in normal training, right? Now, you know, and then I'll try to cover people with different training situations. In an ideal world, if you completely control your training, I would be trying to work that in a specific training where it's set up, okay, you're going to be on your back and your legs up and like, you know, try to give me this situation. It would be contextual, right? But if you go into a normal role, even if you're trying to be thoughtful developing, you're setting yourself up for disaster there because you may go, oh, I'm going to work by Toriando in this match, right? And then your opponent is a wrestler and he like double X and he's on top the whole time. Now you can't do your Toriando, right? 
So then now you're like, oh shit, I wanted to work my Horiano, but I can't because now I'm on bottom. Shit, oh, he's passing. And like, now you're frustrated. And like, you're, so then you start, you start having internal conflict because what you said you wanted to work on for that class is not what you're working on, yeah. but it's not really your fault because you can't control that. Or you're like, oh, I want to work on my arm bar from close guard, right? And then you go against the guy, you get to close guard, but then he's leaning back super far. You can't force him to give you the arm bar. You have to do a hip bump super. So you can't. So in regular training time, you can never really actually force what you want to develop. That's actually when you need to do the brain off training, right? So, but some people train at a gym that they don't give you any time to do that like specific work that you want. So then you might have to use regular training time to do quasi specific, right? So let's say there's one guy in the gym and I know he plays worm guard all the time. I might have prepared something for worm guard passing and go, oh, I'm going to go with that guy because I know he plays it all the time and probably he'll put me in it. And it's kind of like a, a way of doing specific training within normal training, but it's a little bit suboptimal because you may go in there and then actually today he decided he wanted to work a spider guard and then now you can't do it. So I, in a perfect world, have separate times set up for your specific training where you can set it up exactly as you want. So you can really isolate what you need, you know, and then use your regular training time to just turn your brain off and go with the flow. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Makes sense. Now, here's a question I got for you on the topic of grip fighting. So far, we've talked primarily about grip fighting, and this makes sense, of course, given what you're known for, but we've talked primarily about grip fighting in the gi. Do you think that there's any important distinctions or overall conceptual changes you would make if we're talking about no gi, where you have fewer gripping options against your opponent? I think the distance, I mean, I don't do much no gi right now, but I think the distance principle is still going to be true because objectively, they literally cannot pass you if they're far away, right? So from a defensive perspective, the distance is absolutely going to be true. But I, I would say grip fighting, and I don't want to say it's harder in the gi, but it's hop grip fighting is harder in the gi than no gi, I would say. Maybe grip fighting from bottom is harder no gi, but because no gi top, they can't really lock you up quickly, right? Gi top, the guy touches your sleeve, you're immediately entangled in a very dangerous position, Right. No gi, if he grabs your wrist, of course, he can like double grip it and start really pulling you in and trying to set up butterfly and get underneath and stuff. But like a lot of times, you you know, if he just grabs your wrist, you can pull your hand off and push it off real quick. But the gi is so sticky. I mean, it's like one quick little thing and you're entangled. So how quickly you get entangled is super different gi and no gi. No gi, there really isn't any upper body guards, right? Like, I mean, of course, you have like butterfly if they're on both knees and you locked them in, you're there. But you don't really have the ability to just like lock someone in a deep lasso or lock them in double sleep or lock them in half spider, lock them in collar sleep. Gi, it's so fast that your upper body gets entangled. That's probably the biggest difference. And it's like you use your hands to do everything. Like you cannot pass the guy without using your hands. So you're going to have to grab them. They're going to grab your sleeve. That's the biggest difference, right? So as the passer in Gi, you absolutely have to have good answers for dealing with upper body controls because they're 100% going to get them. Yeah. I mean, it, almost everyone who has like a good open spider style game nowadays, you don't see anyone, especially in the lighter weights, you won't see anyone be able to knock it put in. It. Yeah. It's just too easy to get to, you know, whereas Nogi, you don't have that, right? Like you don't have the sleeve grips. So I think it's easier for the guy on top to engage. He doesn't have that concern. That's probably the biggest difference. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up. That's actually one of my favorite things about training in the gi is just that every grip feels dangerous. It always feels like 
as soon as my opponent gets their hand on me, there's something that they can do. And there's so many options they have for grabbing onto you. Whereas in Nogi, because you don't have the benefit of grabbing fabric, it does feel sometimes like you can get away with just not respecting the grips, right? They're just so easy to break and counter sometimes. And I think that's also a really cool realization, something I'd never thought about how in Nogi, you don't really have a lot of upper body controls from guard. It's primarily going to be leg controls that you go for, whereas in the Gi, so easy to just grab the person's jacket. For sure. I mean, of course, you have like an elbow grip. You have like a head and elbow or like head and wrist control. You know, you have a double wrist control. You have like a cross wrist and tricep grip. You do have upper body grips, but they're not, they're like transient. Like you get it and you use it really quick. It's almost like if you were wrestling, like, you know, you get like a an arm drag position, you like drag it really quick, but you can't like hold it for a minute. You know, mm-hmm. like the positions that you can hold for a minute would be like if you get to like single leg X or, you know, like some sort of like leg lock entanglement or 50-50 position, you can actually hold that. Obviously, you can heel hook really quick, but you can actually kind of be in that position for a little bit, right? It's like like thoughts can happen while you're there. Yeah. Whereas like in Gi, like, you know, you get locked up double sleeve and spend the whole match there. No Gi, there's no position like that upper body wise where you can like lock the guy in and you're just going to be there forever, right? Like even Butterfly... It's like you're going to get there. You're probably going to like either sweep him really quick or he's going to pass you really quick or he's going to get out, right? But other than that, it's like half guard, Z guard, you know, stuff like that. There's always some sort of lower body engagement. Yeah, yeah. Now, here's a question for you. When you're talking about grip fighting off the bottom, Mm -hmm. do you have in your head some kind of mental rubric about like an if this, then that of when certain grips might make sense versus others? And the example I would give is I have always found if someone is kneeling in my guard on one leg or both legs. Basically, anything is on the table as long as I can grab it. But if the person stands up, I'm usually going to be very careful about trying to get a collar grip. Because, of course, if they're standing up, if they're way higher than me vertically, reaching my arm up and trying to grab them can kind of expose your arm, take you out of alignment. It's not the strongest grip. I think it's a risk. But if you know where it's coming, I think it's pretty safe. Like like the collar grip when they're standing is excellent, right? But like it just depends on where you got it. Like if I don't have the grip already and the guy's standing really tall and I have to like hyper reach up to try to grab the collar grip and like he's breaking it really quick and stuff and I'm overreaching, that's definitely dangerous for like a jumping triangle. But like if he was like on both knees or something and I got a collar grip and then he stands up and I have a good collar grip, I can collar drag, ankle pick. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of cool things you can do with it. So I still think it's it's relevant. So as far as what grips are useful for where, this is one of those things, again, where it's just like this comes down to like specific knowledge. And this is where, you know, you can get really far with like principles and, and that kind of stuff. And I, I'm going to answer it in a second with more principled answer. But really, you can't get away from like specific knowledge. Like I'm like, I know, like oh, well, if he's on like really, if he's standing one knee up or both knees, as long as his like posture is a little bit lower, a deep lasso is great, you know, and I know exactly where it's relevant and where it's not. But there's no simple principle I could give someone of when and why you can use the lasso in what way. Because you just have to have a ton of specific knowledge on the deep lasso. Same thing for the shallow lasso. Same thing for the daily ebook. There's no simple principle I could give that'll tell you, oh, well, in this situation, you can do this. Oh, but in this situation, I could actually Kyle tear ankle lock him because he's standing like this. So, you know, there's no principle that's going to really give you the full picture. But what I would say for me, understanding all the pre-knowledge I have from years of doing specific training 
in all these different positions, which is ultimately what I urge everyone to do. Just develop knowledge. Even like nowadays, I'm even working half guard and everything, right? So develop knowledge in all these positions, and then you'll be able to make better choices. That's the biggest thing. But what I'm prioritizing for is staying calm, distance, and energy efficiency. That's all I optimize for. So then I'm just kind of keeping the distance. And then whatever grip comes first, I start to build off that. And then I just, it's largely intuitive, right? But again, it's like, if you have a very big vocabulary, you don't have to like prep yourself up to read a book with hard words. You have a great vocabulary. It's easy to read it, right? So it's just like, it seems like it would be this like massively complicated process for me to make these fast paced, like instantaneous high level decisions on what I want to do in a position. I have 20 years of specific training in all these different positions. So to me, it's, I don't know, it's, it's just, I understand that it's hard to do, but you can't build, Rome wasn't built in a day. So you have to trust that the best thing you could do in that moment is relax and trust that what you know is what you know and work on your long-term development in positions that matter. And then your ability to make really quick, fast decisions will be there, right? But you can't, there's nothing you can do to rush that, right? So know what positions will commonly be important like building off sleeve grips, which is like a shallow lasso, a deep lasso, collar sleeve. Those are going to be super good. A half spider, knowing what to do off of an ankle grip, which is going to be like De La Hiva, maybe like a key mastery type thing, knowing how to build off of a collar grip, which will be like, could turn into collar sleeve, could turn into like set up collar guard, collar drag, things like that. So like know those common positions. But what I'm thinking about really is don't waste energy, keep distance, stay calm. That's usually what I'm optimizing for. So one thing I wanted to ask you, John, and you brought up that there's so much variability when you're playing the guard. There is no way you can kind of concept think your way out of this. At the end of the day, you need to do specific situational positional training for all of these different guards, and you need to do a lot of it. Now, of course, when you get up to black belt, by that point, you will probably be fluent with most of the major guards by that point. But what about when you're the beginner? Is there you know, a way that you would recommend people learn all of this stuff because you obviously can't learn everything all at once. Do you suggest, for example, that people pick one guard and just really study it? Or do you suggest that people do a, like a broad approach and study a little bit of everything? Well, I think always have some portion of your training, just be like free rolling and just kind of and have fun with it. Turn your brain off and don't stress it too much. Right. And just like kind of go with the flow. And then for your specific work, like what topics you're working on, right? Of course, you're going to learn stuff in class. Have fun with that. But like, let's say you're, you have like your own side time, like two hours a week where you do your own specific work. You know, the things I would say if you're starting from ground zero is all like the foundational stuff, like make sure you can finish an arm bar well, you know, like start like an arm bar on top with them with their arms locked and try to break it down and, you know, start with like holding mount, holding side control, escaping side control, escaping mount holding the back, escaping back. Because if you understand both how to escape side control well and how to hold side control well, then your understanding at its core of passing and defending guard is going to be a lot better. Because to pass the guard is to get around the legs and lock into side control or north-south or technically mount and holding it for at least three seconds. So if you can like hold those positions really well so that no one can get out and you know how to transition them into a finish... Then when you get around the legs, however you do it, you'll be better at like understanding what it is that you need to have to be able to secure the finish, right? And because the variables are so much less in those positions, 
it's easier to actually understand. Like if jujitsu is done a thousand years from now, knowing how to escape side and hold side is still going to be very important. Right. But like, maybe it turns out that like spider guard or worm guard, you know, is more or less useful, right? They're debatable. Right. But those positions are going to matter. So if you know how to hold side mount back control and escape those really well and how to finish a triangle escape, finish an arm bar escape, all that stuff really well. Like your fundamental building blocks are there. Whenever you learn how to do a guard pass later, you learn how to like do a sweep or something. You're going to just be better at finishing it in general. So those are definitely the first things. Once you have those kind of done, the first open guards I usually recommend are double sleeve and collar sleeve because they work whether or not your opponent's on both knees, one knee up standing. They are easy to get to because they have to use their hands. Those are just the first guards I recommend, you know, and obviously close guard too. Yeah. Yeah. I am a big fan of collar sleeve guard. It's just so versatile. You can get those grips from so many different places. I also find, and this is maybe again, a a me thing, but I find that for some reason, it's a lot easier on my fingers than double sleeve, I guess, because I can use my dominant hand to get that grip on the collar. And that feels just, it's for me anyway, it's an easier grip on my fingers where I find I can kind of burn out and injure my fingers if I'm doing double sleeve. I would want to know if, if you have any suggestions on how to take care of your fingers when you're going for these grips because that is one of the things about playing a gi based grip guard is you do have to worry about finger health right yeah i mean i think most of the time that like it just takes a long time to learn this but like i can play double sleeve with one finger on each hand like i play with my pinky like it's not the only reason that i i need all the fingers to play is to take the slack out of the sleeve But from a grip strength perspective, it's not much grip strength, really. I know it's hard for people to believe, but you have to learn to just go with the tension. The reason it's usually hard is people are playing tug of war with their opponent. They're holding the sleeve and they're like really hard pulling and it's like a counter fight, like where they're pulling and like you're trying to fight the grip with your hand. It's more like you're just kind of moving with it. You you shouldn't be that hard. So a lot of finger health is more technique based. If it feels like it's too hard to hold them, let go. (laughs) You know, or like, or, you know, again, going back to specific knowledge, you have to know how to hold things properly. But if you feel like they're going to break the grip, just let it break it. Don't try to hold grips that people are breaking. So I think don't hold grips too long that are being broken. That'll save your fingers a lot. And then in general, try to go with the movements. You you shouldn't have to use that much force to hold the sleeve. That's actually a good observation, right? That uh, holding the grip stubbornly is not necessarily a great idea. And I think that that observation pans out. The people I know who talk about this are often the people who are very stubborn with holding their grips. So I presume that what you're going to say then is if you're not holding the grips that stubbornly and you're willing to let go, presumably you're looking for other grips or you're looking to trade up to a different grip that is then easier on your fingers, right? When someone breaks that grip. Yeah, sure. I mean, well, also most of the time if someone is pulling, like usually sleeve grips become harder when someone postures up really hard, right? But if they're posturing up, pulling their arm away and you let go of it, they can't grab your leg because they're pulling their arm away. And if they come back to grab your leg, then you can grab the sleeve again. Like if if I'm standing, pulling my arms back, you can't grab my leg because you're pulling your arms back, Mm -hmm. right? And then you can let your upper body, I've done videos on this before online, but you know, you can let your upper body go with it. It doesn't have to be that hard on the hand. But if you want to, you can like kind of just let go of it and then move on to their leg controls. And then if they come back, you can go back. 
Yeah, yeah. This is a favorite thing for me to do if my opponent is really, really working to stand up and get posture. It might make some upper body grips harder to get, but then the legs become exposed. So yeah. being able to switch to whatever is, is most convenient at the time is a good thing for your finger health when it comes to, you know, not doing getting those joint injuries that so many jujitsu people have. I mean, again, like the hard thing in jujitsu is like not like you, when you're in a position, there's probably a better answer than what you're doing, but you don't know what it is, right? Yeah. So like generally as a compass, nothing you're doing should feel that forceful, right? Now, of course, there's going to be times where you're in a fight and you don't know what to do and you're about to get past. And if you're in a tournament, that's the time to fight. Like you do, okay, make it up. Ah, you go crazy and you fight hard. It's probably not the most efficient choice, but it's all you had in that moment because you were in trouble. But as a compass, when I'm in the gym, I'm trying to use very little energy to do everything I'm doing. If I eliminate all the crazy high energy, high effort movements, right? Then the only thing left are things that are like really like lower energy. They're going to be more efficient. So then I eliminate all the wasteful movements. And then now maybe there's like, you know, 50 low energy movements and 49 of them are not going to work, but one of them will. But I've eliminated the other 200 options that are high energy wasteful. And then I sort through until I find the low energy effective answer. Mm -hmm. Well, if you do that over a long period of time, you consistently find low energy good answers. And that's very hard for people to understand. But if you're rolling with someone for 10 minutes in a competition fight, like it's not as much cardio as it is energy efficiency. If you're blowing a ton of energy, like you're just going to gas out, right? I mean, all the time I'll roll people and just let them try to pass for the first minute. And they're like, ah, they go crazy. And then they're like, <gasps> you know, and I haven't even moved much, right? And that's that's on them. Yeah. So, you know, but again, you don't know what the right answer is when you don't have knowledge. So it's easy to say that when you have the knowledge, when you don't have it, you're like, well, shit, I don't know what to do. So again, separate. If you were in a tournament and you're in trouble and you're about to get passed, that's the time to go crazy and fight. Just make it up, go use all your energy, be inefficient. Whatever you got to do to not lose, great, do it. But sometimes in the gym, when you're rolling, try to see how good you can do not using that much energy. You'll be blown away. If you, again, like it's like if you solve, if you have an equation in math, like, you know, and it has like two variables, like X and Y, it's like 5X plus Y equals eight. You know, you can solve for Y or you can solve for X, right? And in this case, like I can solve for like sweeping as fast as possible. I could solve for not letting my heart rate go above a certain level is another one, right? Or I could solve for use double sleep, right? And you can prioritize all three of those as a goal, but they're, they're not all going to be equal, right? If I prioritize use double sleep, like at all costs, I may be wasting a ton of energy to get to the position, right? If I prioritize, you know, don't use so much energy, then I'm going to adapt to do that, right? And if you do that, not all the time, but if you do that a lot of times when you train, when you go, okay, I'm going to not try, try to not use that much energy, you'll be blown away. Like you'll be holding a position that you really like and you'll see, oh shit, my heart rate's going to go above a certain level to keep this, but I'm not allowed to let my heart rate go above a certain level. I got to let go. So then you let go and you find it. And then now you may get smashed after that, but because you don't know where to go, but eventually, if you never let your heart rate go above a certain level, the only thing left are choice and you want to win is the only thing left eventually are the choices that are effective and don't put your heart rate above a certain level because there's choices that are effective, but put your heart rate above a certain level, but they're unsustainable. So sometimes doing training like that, not all your training, but some trainings like that 
will help you discover more efficient movement patterns, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it makes total sense. And I I love that that rubric of just making sure that you're always prioritizing, staying relaxed, not burning too much energy. Because yeah, you're right, it is very, very common for people on the bottom to be so aggressive about what they're doing and to be holding on so tight that they burn themselves out. And like we said earlier, you're probably already at an energy disadvantage if you're the one fighting off of the bottom. So it makes a ton of sense that you would try to to mitigate that as much as possible. I think it's also good that you you bring up that it it is not wise to have the only thing holding down your opponent be your fingers right if the only thing stopping your opponent from moving is the 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 strength in your two or three fingers that is not a good sign that probably means that if you keep playing that game you're going to mess up your fingers yeah yeah for sure i mean something i've been doing more recently that i didn't ever do before but just playing with it is actually using like i guess you call it like knee shield or c guard or even half guard a little not deep half per se but just like you know, if someone's like postured and they're being mega grip fighty, right, where they're just like any sleeve you're trying to be like, ah, they're breaking it and stuff. And like, I'm and I'm trying to optimize for like using no energy. Normally, what I would do is if they won't give the sleeves or the collar, I'll just grab the knee and jump back to like a daily Hebo position and I can attack from there. That's very energy efficient. But if I'm trying to be like super lazy on the gym, I'm just trying to see if I can like not even let my heart rate go above like 80, you know. Then whenever they're really high like that, I'll just kind of like shoot it like a Z guard because if they're up really high with their upper body, they can't, this is more specific knowledge. I don't know if people know the position, but like if I get a Z guard or like a knee shield, you know, to get rid of that shield, they have to kind of like grab that pant leg and push it behind to try to clear that leg out of the way or center me up. But if they're being really disengagey with their upper body, like hiding sleeves and collar and breaking grips. You can kind of like pull into like a knee shield on their leg and they can't really, and I cross my feet when I do it, they can't really do anything without coming back down into you, right? So then when they come back down into me, then I can start grabbing a collar or a sleeve naturally and start using it. And then I can kind of build from there, you know? So there's many different ways you can solve that. But when you, again, when you have depth of knowledge in each of the guards individually, you'll be able to use those tools when they are relevant. But generally, if I just try to optimize for low energy output, I tend to find better answers. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Man, that's a that's a lot of info there that we covered. Was there anything else you wanted to get into on the topics of grip fighting that we didn't already discuss? Not really. I mean, in short, I think it's uh, retention is the most important thing. And then try to just develop depth of knowledge in all the common grips that you would likely be in, like building off a single sleeve, single ankle, knee grip, like maybe knee shield, half guard because those are the common access points and then develop knowledge and all those and it'll kind of build itself. Got it. Got it. Well, man, as always, I can't thank you enough for coming by, John. Always love having these chats with you. If people want to follow you or check out your work, how do they go about doing that? Oh yeah. I'm on Instagram at John Thomas BJJ, YouTube, John Thomas BJJ. And they also have a website, www.johnthomasbjj.com. Awesome. And as always, I'll put the links to those in the show notes, make it easy for people to find your stuff. If people aren't already following John, I mean, what are you doing with your life? Really? You definitely should be. John's one of the best resources out there. And again, so much of that information is freely available from him. So if you're not already following John on Instagram or YouTube, definitely do recommend it. And yeah, I would recommend, of course, checking out John's instructionals on his website as well. Uh, Always amazing material there, John. Again, I'll put the links in the show notes. If anyone wants to find our stuff at BJJ Mental Models, I'll put that link there too, but it's pretty easy to find. Everything we make is on BJJMentalModels.com. 
ton of podcast episodes on there, including a bunch of prior chats that we had with John, also access to our amazing newsletter, and of course, BJJ Mental Models Premium. That's how we float the boat here. You get BJJ Mental Models Premium, and we'll give you access to our full audio course library, as well as direct training from our coaching team. There's a free trial, so really do recommend trying it out if you haven't already. Again, you can get that at bjjmentalmodels.com. Follow the link in the show notes and it'll all be there. But John, man, I know it's getting late over there. So thanks a lot for coming by. Really do appreciate it, man. And hope I get to see you again soon. No problem. Happy to be back as always. Awesome. Thanks. And thanks to everyone listening. Appreciate you as well. We'll talk to you next time. Take care.